thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. The conductor Daniel Barenbaum caused controversy when he conducted a piece by the composer Richard Wagner at the end of a Jerusalem concert in 2001. Why? Because Wagner was an anti-Semite, beloved of the Nazis, and there had been an informal ban on the composer's music in the Jewish state since its inception in 1948. When Mozart's marriage of Figaro took Vienna by storm in 1786, some conservative commentators accused the composer of undermining societal norms. And in the early decades of the 20th century, the protest song established itself as a serious idiom that went on to have a wide influence on popular music. All this is to remind us that music, the most abstract of arts, can also be political. And the politics of music is our subject this week. Not, by the way, the Byzantine politics of music making, which we'll leave for another time. And the politics of music can be brutal. Here's Daniel Levitin with a surprising observation from the Naked Scientist show, The Science of Music. The American government drove Manuel Noriega out of his compound by playing him 36 hours of ACDC music. That was enough to drive him to surrender. And I think we've all had that experience where you're in a shopping mall or something and they're piping in music and you wish it would just stop. It reminds me of that scene in the film Apocalypse Now when helicopters are flying over the Vietnam jungle, playing the ride of the Valkyries on loudspeakers. And coincidentally, it was also composed by Wagner. With me to discuss the politics of music is the Naked Reflection stalwart Dunya Habash, a PhD scholar here at the Wolf Institute who leads the Music in Harmony project, Arab music, Jewish, Christian and Muslim, into schools and has nearly, 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 nearly submitted her PhD. And welcome back to Jonas Otterbeck, professor at Akan University in London, who has a special interest in Islamic popular music and censorship and has written Awakening of Islamic Popular Music, published last year. Well, welcome both. Jonas, you've studied the censorship of music. On the face of it, the very idea of censorship on such an abstract art seems 
absurd. One thing that most people who engage in music agree on is that music is powerful and it can be used for a number of different things. So what in music is powerful? That has been an open question. So, for example, some people have considered certain instruments particularly sensitive. So in Islamic tradition, the ney has been subjected to censorship. In uh, American Christian tradition, some country artists, for example, in the 40s and 50s did not record with drums because drums were a sensitive issue. Some scales are problematic, like the Tritonus scale. Some styles of music. So, yeah, there, there's a, a number of things, and I haven't even mentioned the lyrics yet, which is very often what people tend to focus on. So there are multiple reasons to engage in music, both to try to create a space for music, but also for power holders to be nervous about it and, and possibly also want to censor it. So yeah, I mean, Plato, as far back as uh, the ancient Greeks, was really the first to discuss the power of music in the abstract sense, not even thinking about lyrics yet, but just the effects that music has on civic engagement, on behavior, on the types of social worlds that a human being becomes involved in. And he was really the first to say that there are certain types of music that should be banned. And, you know, it was a way to protect the proper ethical citizen at the time. So it's, an, it's really an old debate. So it's a long history, Jonas. Can you give us uh, an example or two uh, in your research where it's the music itself that has been threatening? When you talk about, um, let's say, um, music in Islamic context or Muslim context, it is very much uh, a discussion about the guitar, for example. But since I do mainly uh, Islam in Europe and or Islam in the West, it's sometimes called studies, you could see a, a development from the mid-90s up until the first uh, 10 years of, of the 21st century, where guitar self-evidently in 1995 was not part of what you would expect a Muslim artist who want to come across as devout would use. But 10 years later, there's been a revolution, and artists that shunned the guitar were now playing it. Just personally, I think I can I can jump in here because I very much grew up in this culture as as a Muslim who grew up in in the West and as someone who wanted to pursue uh, serious piano studies, I I got a lot of backlash from members of my community at the time, very devout Muslims who told me that you're going to go to hell for studying music in this way and you shouldn't pursue this. And of course, those people were of the camp that you know only nasheed and only anything related to the Qur'an is permissible, any sound outside of that was impermissible. So I really struggled to kind of, you know, take the decision that, no, I don't see a problem with studying classical piano music. Do you think it's a generational shift, Dunya? I really think so. You know, my generation and after, they grew up in the West, and these things are normal. These are normative practices to spread messages, to commune with each other. I mean, just music in the West has a very different uh, connotation to older Islamic ideas about music. So I think the next generation slowly, slowly have been diluting out that narrative that it is totally impermissible. And not just diluting it, I think they're also debating it as well. You know, going back to this original idea that, okay, maybe certain types of music aren't allowed, but maybe we can open up that framework and see, like, you know, just expand 
types of music that are permissible and not permissible. And I think that's how people like Maher Zain kind of get away with what they're doing because they're, they have a very ethical Islamic message in, in their music and people just ignore the instruments uh, that are being used. I think those personal uh, anecdotes are very powerful, actually, and particularly when they resonate with what Jonas was saying. But perhaps we should add words now to the conversation. So far, we've just been talking about instruments or we've been talking about music per se. But once words are added, there's more scope, isn't there, for challenging or reinforcing authority or expressing religious belief. Taverns, for example, have very often been uh, centres of um, taunt. So taunting the village minister or the local sheikh or the uh, the states or the military leaders while drinking beer and, and wine. The power knowing that you can hold a speech, but if you make a memorable melody, very simple, you can get people to repeat things and, and sing in their minds or out loud and laugh at you. And being laughed at has always been something that uh, the high and mighty have never really appreciated. Taverns are not a new thing. I mean, uh, traveling taverns and, and different kinds of taverns have been popular everywhere. And I mean, uh, the Sufis who, who used the metaphor of getting drunk, drinking wine for getting intoxicated with the love of God, uh, they, of course, used the metaphor of wine drinking because people were drinking wine or other kinds of alcoholic beverages if they couldn't afford that. Dunya, in the research that you've done in terms of the musical traditions in Arab lands, particularly uh, Iraq and Syria, you would have come across, of course, protest songs, whether they're, they're contemporary or from earlier times. As Jonas said, um, the simpler the, the tune, the, the more powerful the song became. And, you know, with very simple lyrics like Janna Janna Ya Watanna, which is Heaven, Heaven, Oh My Country of Syria, You Are My Heaven. And it was sung by Abdel Basit Sarut, who became basically a legend of the revolution and unfortunately was assassinated during the revolution. Um, and this one song just kind of took off and, and became the face of the revolution and united so many Syrians across the nation. Protest music is is quite powerful, and this is why I think authoritarian regimes are very careful about censoring these sorts of songs. One area that we need to discuss is when power uses music. And I, I assume what we're talking about is the authorities' use of music to suppress um, certain segments of society or to uh, propagate their own political views. Well, there is a very good example of this, and that's the national anthems. They propagate, they are ritualistic, they aim to create community, pride, and, of course, the downside of, of all that is that they create the other also. And it basically forces a compliance on the people who are sort of in focus to sing the national anthem or pay respect to it. And we saw that during the, the football uh, championship now, the, the world championship, how the, the Iranian team uh, did not sing and it was suspected uh, that they did not sing because they did not want to support the government. I don't want to make the interpretation because, I mean, why they did not sing, I don't really know because I haven't asked them. But it was definitely interpreted like that. And uh, you could then see how the Iranian state reacted by not showing them during 
that part of the broadcast. They rather swept over the audience so that it wouldn't be obvious that they did not sing. So national anthems is a way of power to use music. Other examples is Hamas and Hezbollah, who has their own musical departments, who produce music specifically for marches, for events, and, and they employ musicians to do that, both of them. Yeah, I would say another historical example is also the use of music in armies. Um, the Ottoman army, for example, is, you know, the kind of classic go-to army when looking at the use of sound and, and music in terms of scaring off the enemy. I mean, they, they had specific Janissaries set just to play the drums and to, they had these instruments called zurnas, which made these loud, almost like, more harsher than trumpets today. I mean, just very loud sound as they entered the battlefield. And that was part of their scare tactic to kind of appear bigger than they were to their enemies. And alongside what Dunya said, Jonas, there's a Scandinavian tradition as well, isn't there, of protest songs? It's basically, on one level, a translation of uh, the American uh, protest songs, uh, Joe Hill, Blues, of course, Dylan, and that generation who pr protested against the Vietnam War. So it grew in prominence in the late 60s, but it also married together uh, with a rather chauvinist and nationalist movement saying that we should produce genuine culture. And he was, in a way, anti-industrialist, anti-capitalist, anti-record industry, anti-sexist, uh, and, interestingly enough, even though taking inspiration of, from America, anti-American. It was representing the ideas of the left's left. And um, it was called progressive rock or progressive music, which should not be uh, conflated with the, the British use of the term. No, this was sort of community engagement, working together with unions, putting up theatres, etc. And there was a, a pretty strong, uh, after a while, feminist element to it also. And that then fed into the Swedish version of punk, uh, which once again were picked up from the US and Britain, of course. And uh, we have also another rather typical, and unfortunately it's uh, the white power movement. So there was a racist white power, nationalist chauvinist music um, that was a reaction in the 90s uh, towards what they claimed was a mass migration and Sweden became, during a couple of, uh, well, actually a couple of decades, a hub for racist white power music uh, when it came to distribution and production. Some of them Swedish bands, but also distributing bands from, from uh, other parts of the world. So those were also protest music, sort of targeting um, the rulers and their agenda. So all protest music is not necessarily according to my liking, Oh, well, I think um, we can just look at the, the music used by groups like ISIS, for example. Unfortunately, they use a lot of Nasheed music, actually, because, you know, of course, they're conservative enough to ban, you know, the instrumental music. But of course, the Nasheed became kind of the the sound, basically, of, of groups like ISIS. And, and unfortunately, these, these things really did lure a lot of people into their movement. And to me, that is... The, the most grotesque way that music that for me is especially Nasheed music. It's linked to the Quran, linked to a lot of the kind of ethical principles of Islam. It gets usurped by groups like ISIS for their, you know, terrible agendas, unfortunately. 
So music used for both good and, and for ill. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Dunya Habash and Jonas Otterbeck, and we're talking about the politics of music. If politics can sometimes be consensual, then so can music. Here's Ian Cross speaking on the Naked Scientist show we heard a clip from at the top of the program, The Science of Music. Let's say sing in a choir. Why are you singing in a choir? Particularly if you don't have much of a voice. And there are many people who sing in choirs who don't have much of a voice. So why are they singing? Because of a sense of a way that music has of enhancing affiliation, of allowing a sense of community to emerge uh, in a non-conflictual situation. Dunya, I'd like to explore some of the um, research you've been doing in the Living in Harmony project. Does that show that music can reach places that words cannot? Absolutely. The Living in Harmony project, we were looking at Arab cities such as Baghdad and Aleppo in Syria and Damascus, where there were large groups of non-Muslim communities living in these cities for centuries with Muslim neighbors, of course. And the amazing thing about the musical culture that kind of grew out of cities like Aleppo is the Arab maqam tradition and how this was really shared by all of the communities, regardless of faith. And a lot of that sharing took place actually in the Zawiyas, which are the Sufi lodges that um, every Friday would have a dhikr performance, you know, very Islamic performance. And you had Christian Arabs, Jewish Arabs visiting and, and participating and listening as a way of learning the maqam tradition. So, I mean, to me, that is just the ultimate example of how music can kind of transcend these these boundaries. It went even deeper than that. A lot of Jewish Arab communities borrowed popular Arab tunes that they heard in the zawiyas or they heard in the streets or in their neighbors' homes. And, and they started putting liturgical music together based on, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible and, and, and performing these tunes in Jewish synagogues across the region. So they digested. I mean, that's the point. It's, yeah. It kind of crosses these cultures, both for positive in the example you've given and, and, and in the negative, as we heard from Jonas before the break, in terms of it being used for offense. And as you said, with ISIS, it's remarkable that there's almost a language there, isn't it? For those of us who aren't musically literate, of which I include myself, I'm taken by the fact that this living tradition, which goes back centuries, if not millennia, it crosses boundaries so easily. When you use the example of Sufis hosting these musical concerts, as it were, was it important that it was Sufi? That's an interesting question. And I think these Zawiyas in Aleppo in particular, I don't think they would self-ascribe themselves as Sufis, so to speak, but just Sufi in the sense that they did employ more musical elements in their dhikr ceremonies. I, I wouldn't call it a concert either. The dhikr is, is a very religious practice. I mean, it's all about reflecting on your relationship with God. Typically, string instruments were not used. It was just vocals and percussion. But still, the maqam that was utilized in the vocal practices, I mean, this is what kept uh, Arabic music alive, and it was disseminated out of these these zawiyas um, or lodges, so to speak. So the word Sufi is quite complicated. It's hard to you know deconstruct it. Let's return to the protest song itself, because it came to prominence, certainly as a term, in the early 20th century. Um, Jonas, was this partly a result of technical developments, such as the gramophone? I think so. Uh, the protest song changed at least its uh, its phase. 
So because of, of the possibility of having it recorded and broadcasted, you can reach out in a completely different way. And those social movements that picked up um, sort of a protest song, they turned these uh, artists into movement artists in the similar way that you can talk about movement intellectuals, you can talk about social movement artists. Because they had the success, of course, wanted to, to cater for the audience some people, of course, getting locked in that position like Bob Dylan, who wanted them out of it um, because it stifled his creativity at the end of the day. I think the technological change changed a lot. And we know that. I mean, the, the cassette recording was extremely important for, for numerous different things. For example, sometimes uh, the Iranian revolution is called the cassette revolution because Khomeini and other intellectuals spread their message on cassettes that could be smuggled around. But so did the, the early generation of political Nasheed singers in Syria who were opposing the Syrian regime, often from a Muslim uh, Brotherhood perspective, the old cassette deck where you press the the red one and the the triangle at the same time, and then you can record. Now any anyone could record anything and then spread it to friends, and then it circulated because you sang things that were that kind of taunt by standing up tall for for something, and he wasn't broadcasted in that sense, but smuggled around and made some of those early artists legendary in. Uh, Islamic revivalist circles. Probably our modern equivalent would, would be things like Facebook and social media in the sense that the general public can, you know, put their opinions out there or, as in this case, sing into these recording devices. I think uh, another really strong example from the Arab world of how, you know, the gramophone and these new recording technologies really did something incredible is uh, the singer Im Kaltoum in Egypt, because I really think it was the technology of the times that made her so popular and made her such an icon in the Arab world. I mean, the radio also played a big role in, in her image getting out there. And she really became the image of like pan-Arabism at the time. People would stop in the streets when, when her concerts were playing on the radio. An entire society stopping and listening to the same thing at once. It's really incredible. And again, goes back, I think, to these technologies. And the power of music. And the power of music, it. of course, definitely. I have an example there, a very recent one. And that's the, the song of uh, Sherwin Hajipur uh, from Iran that put out on uh, social media his song Baraye, which means because of. And then he said, because of the lovers not being able to kiss in the street. And he just sort of lists a, a long, long, long list uh, of reasons to protest. And it just took a couple of days and then he was uh, in jail. But the song made it through social media and uh, it's now sort of one of the anthems. I just want to pick up on your point about how easy it is to use music for protest. And maybe one of the reasons is that if one gets involved in a political debate, there's always going to be threatening to somebody. But there's something about music that in theory is non-threatening. But what you've both been saying is potentially how threatening it can be to rulers. There's a sort of language, a sort of code that can be used that you just have to say a few very simple words. I think, as you said earlier, Dunya, the simpler the tune, the more powerful the lyrics. And you think not just of religious um, music, but you think of, I don't know, Dylan. Um, very simple words uh, and incredibly powerful. Um, is there something unique about music? 
Yes, there is something unique about music. That's the short answer. It is immediate, physical, emotional, and uh, it's very, very difficult to uh, ignore sound. I mean, if someone screams, you can't ignore it. You cannot ignore the sound of thunder. You will hear it. And the same goes for music. It's extremely difficult to ignore. Play a good bass line and you get a baby who just can learn how to stand up. They will still move their body in, in time or possibly almost in time. And uh, people clap their hands and they stamp their feet. It, it, it is engaging. And it also has this very proven neurological possibilities of causing distress, but also calm. Should it be cherished just for its own beauty? Are we not um, bringing it down when we add the politics of protest to music? When you have a vehicle like that, nah, it should be used for everything, shouldn't it? That, dear listener, seems a great way to end this programme. Thanks to my guests, Dunya Habash and Jonas Otterbeck. I hope you enjoyed the show. I did. And you might want to browse the Naked Reflections archive, where you can find several discussions about music, including with Dunya and Jonas. And do check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at the Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.